We could use more Foucauldian appreciation of all of the ways that we are all, um, as it were, taken up by, produced by, fashioned by, and set into motion by forms of power that aren't sovereign, aren't, aren't contained, aren't commodified, um, but are circulating, including through our bodies, through our psyches, through our language, um, through us and our relations in every way. Welcome to the Social Science for Public Good podcast, a project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this series, we attempt to make social science theory available and accessible for social change practitioners, such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad Stevens. And I'm Yagasha Bakshi. We're both PhD students in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech, interested in the question of how to build a better world. Welcome back, everyone. So we've covered quite a lot of ground here. We've talked about so about four theories by now. Um, and we've also had the pleasure of understanding a little bit more of our, about feminist accounts of power. What do you think, Brad? It's been fascinating. I, I feel like I understand and can talk about power much more cogently now than I could before. But I hope you're enjoying it as well. Yes, I am. I am. I was also thinking about some of the conversations that we had last week and how we briefly touched on the aspect of uh, financialization of the economy and how that has been affecting power structures. And that left me craving for more discussion on how some of these conceptions of power stand in today's world, the neoliberal world. Do you think with financialization, deregulation and increased privatization, Building an understanding of the working of power is more challenging. I don't know about more challenging, but I think it's 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 changing. So that again, you know, I think that's part of what we've come to understand across all these episodes is that, that power is dynamic, and so that if you understood power in the '80s, it doesn't mean you understand power now. And that uh, so I think that this neoliberal frame we're operating in, we have to think about power differently. And I think maybe even. Uh, if we were to consider this late neoliberalism, uh, hopefully, um, <laughs> we, it uh, it's probably even different than early neoliberalism was and how powerful it moved. But how about how about you? Is there uh, uh, do you have any thoughts about how this is different in this in this state? Well, I do think there are um, there is a push to do certain things which probably wasn't there in the 70s and 80s. Um, and this is going back to something that Professor Max had also mentioned about, you know, turning public management into private management. So we are seeing more actors on the field now, more stakeholders, which, uh, you know, leads to more management and a little more or better understanding of what kind of role everyone is playing. And we've also briefly talked about how the nonprofit sector sits in the whole, you know, this whole scene. Are they are they serving the market? Are they serving the public? So there are interesting questions for sure. And I think it does become a little challenging, but I, I agree with you that it has it is changing for sure. Um, but yeah, interesting nonetheless. So for today's episode, we will be looking 
a little deeper into this question of how do we understand the working of power in the neoliberal world? Are you excited about this? I, I am. I, I'm fascinated by how we understand neoliberalism and the frame we operate in at the moment. So looking very much forward to this. Great. To help us think about this, we've got Dr. Wendy Brown to share her expertise. Dr. Brown is a distinguished American political theorist and professor emerita in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Brown's fields of interest include the history of political theory, feminist theory, contemporary critical theories of law, 19th and 20th century continental theory, and contemporary American political culture. She is best known for intertwining the insights of Marx, Nietzsche, Weber, Freud, Frankfurt, school theorists, Foucault, and contemporary continental philosophers to critically interrogate formations of power, political identity, citizenship, and political subjectivity in contemporary liberal democracies. In recent years, her scholarship has focused on neoliberalism and the political formations to which it gives rise. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you've written widely about power as it was understood by Foucault and Marx um, and the need to look beyond it. Can you start us off by sharing how you became interested in this subject and uh, why it continues to be of such great interest to you? Uh, well, uh, in part, the answer is that uh, I ha actually had a very formative teacher who was interested in power, Sheldon Wolin. Uh, and um, one of the things I learned early on from him that has continued to be useful for me is that um, power is something that comes in many, many forms in the human species. And uh, it's unfortunate in English that we have a relatively limited vocabulary for it. I mean, we have the terms power, force, domination, etc. But um, one might say usefully that uh, we we need the 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 range of terms for power that the Inuits are said to have for snow. Um, that is, when we talk about, for example, the power of solidarity or the power of labor, it's a very different thing than when we talk about the power of the state, the power of finance, the power of structural racism, uh, the power of patriarchy. Um, these things are, uh, it, it would be a mistake to assimilate them all to a common notion of power and um, so one thing I've actually been interested in throughout my writing life is trying to specify more closely what kind of power I'm talking about at any particular moment, whether it's the power to construct a neoliberal subject or the power to remake a university in a neoliberal frame, or whether it's carceral power, police power, um, that works unevenly across racialized and class societies. It's important, in my understanding, to be able to distinguish and theorize the operations of power at every turn. And even when we talk about, you know, our familiar mantra today, gender, race, class, sexuality, each of those are brought into being as identities, as subject formations, through very different kinds of power. 
the history, for example, in the U.S. of slavery, followed by Jim Crow, followed by other iterations of racialized civil, social, economic, and state power, makes race very differently than, for example, the patriarchal family and a gendered political economy makes gender. So um, I, I always, with students and colleagues, um, when we start to throw the term power around, I always want to know what kind are we talking about, what effects do we imagine it has, um, and how and where is it operating? Is it, is it operating from a single site, uh, a state, a boss, uh, a slave master, or is it circulating, irrigating, moving through society uh, and through the bodies of subjects within it? Um, I've just opened up the question, but I imagine we can talk about many things within that frame. Absolutely. I really appreciate that way of thinking about it there. And I'm wondering, you know, we use this this one term power here, although, as you mentioned, we break it down into domination and empowerment and these other kind of frames, solidarity. Is there um, do you still find the term power useful as a collective term or does does it need to be? Uh, uh, define more more closely to be useful in any context? It's a great question, Brad. I, I do think power almost always needs modifications, adjectives, uh, for us to understand it richly. And at the same time, I never want to give up the term for the simple reason that ordinary ideologies of liberalism and capitalism are, among other things, exercises in the disavowal of power. That is to say, the, the fundamental feature of liberalism, classical liberalism, not left-right liberalism, just constitutional democracy, um, the, the fundamental feature of it is uh, an identification of individuals as free to do and say what they want as long as they don't hurt anybody and as equal insofar as they're protected by the state in that freedom. What that formulation, just basic constitutional liberalism, what that, base, what that formulation disavows are all the powers stratifying and constraining various kinds of subjects in society, not only by race and class and sexuality and gender, but also in all kinds of ordinary ways uh, in everyday life, all the impediments to, as it were, being free or exercising our freedom, and all the limitations on that formal equality that stratify us. Um, so the reason I think it's really important to continue using the term power at every turn is because it's, it's always the beginning of a critique of that kind of disavowal that liberalism entails and that basic defenses of capitalism as free entail. I mean, that, that notion that capitalism frees us all, frees labor, frees capital, frees us all to do whatever we want, however we want to do it, um, also disavows the powers, including the power of labor exploitation, but also the power to plunder the earth and destroy habitats for human and non-human species alike. That 
power is what has to be surfaced. So you can tell already in this discussion, I've, I've surfaced several kinds of powers, stratifications, exploitations, plunder, domination. Those should not all be pushed together. And we haven't even gotten to the most crucial um, turn that, that Foucault invites us to take, which is to appreciate the productive dimension of power, not just the repressive or the destructive dimensions. Um, thank you, Dr. Brown, because you've really opened up the discussion to the nature of power, and I really appreciate that. I'm going to quote from your uh, influential paper that was published back in 96, Power Without Logic, um, Without Marx, where uh, you had written that Contemporary left intellectuals, critical race theorists, and feminist theorists are generally uncertain about how to think about the nature of power, even as they are often preoccupied with power's effects. Do you still believe that we are more invested in understanding the effects of power rather than the nature of power? Mm. And how would you urge um, the current generation to think about this? Great. I have not thought about this problem since 96, I suppose. So that's um, quite a while. But uh, your final question in, in, in your formulation uh, actually helps me bring it into the contemporary period. Yes, I think it is important both to understand power as having effects and effects as a, as a beginning way to decode power. I think you know we start from its effects to under to, to work our way back to to what power is, but at the same time, I think it's very easy to end up in what Marx taught us to understand as reifications of power. That is, ways in which certain effects become the kind of mm, congealed qualities of power's productions uh, that keep us blind to the nature of power itself. So how does that work in contemporary practice? It seems to me that one way to understand some of the limitations today of, let's just loosely call it left, organizing or left political consciousness is precisely that it's absorbed with certain kinds of effects. This is, I think, what, what gets called wokeism. Um, certain kinds of effects in the form of um, speech acts or um, uh, even microaggressions and so forth, uh, and, and keeps us from seeing what some of the deeper forces, structures, uh, cauldrons of power are, and reaching for those rather than um, scolding one another for embodying those effects or expressing those effects. And that's, that's you know, a common complaint these days, what I've just expressed, but you gave me the chance to explain it or, or, or register the complaint. Uh, th through the distinction between power's effects and a, 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 a rich analysis of power that 
um, allows us to reach a little more for the trunk of the tree rather than for the twigs. Now, there's nothing wrong with also studying effects and responding to effects. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that, uh, for example, Me Too or, um, or, or the, the subject that initially promulgated Black Lives Matter, namely unequal um, police brutality and incarceration practices vis-a-vis -vis Black Lives, um, those, those effects are, are absolutely crucial. But then we need a good analysis of where's it coming from? How's it reproduced? What are its tentacles? What are its, what are its wily ways? And not just what are the statistics or, or, or what's the discourse? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I love this, the, the way you're, where you're taking us here. And I, I I'm intrigued, you know, we talked a little bit about this when we talk more about Foucauldian approach, but I think there's a, there's an understanding in Foucault that, you know, that we are all subjects of power and, and that we are, this is everywhere. And it, it makes it somewhat difficult when we're used to an understanding of power where we say that elite up there or that person, that entity that has power isn't acting it over me when we're thinking about there's a much bigger picture beyond all of that. And we're seeing that become more and more complex. If I'm just thinking about uh, an earlier conversation, Dr. Luke's pointed us to Shoshana Zuboff's conversation about power and, you know, these new kind of understandings of power that are emerging all the time. When those happen, are the 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 ways that we mobilize and, and and we seek to promulgate change. Have to move as the as we understand power differently. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about how we might uh, those of us that are seeking to to engage in promoting justice or or, or, or mm -hmm. such in the world can can try to should we focus on analyzing power and how should we think about doing so in a world where that is becoming increasingly difficult and, and complex over time? Maybe not becoming increasingly difficult, but it's, our tools for analysis are make, allowing us to look deeper and deeper. Yeah. Let me first go a little bit behind your question to talk about Foucault. I know you've had other guests who've, who've done so, um, but I, I just want to underscore something that uh, Foucault taught us to be alert to that sometimes I think gets misconstrued. Um, the, the, the caricature sometimes of Foucault's understanding of power is that power is everywhere and, and we're all in it and we need to stop thinking about you know the powerful and the non-powerful and so forth and just understand it as everywhere. And Certainly Foucault did say power is everywhere, but what did he mean? Um, what Foucault was alert to, and I don't think he invented this theory of power. I actually think theorists like Weber and Marx are important antecedents to this theory. But what he, what he was alert to was the extent to which we late moderns still tend to talk about power as if it's held by an individual or an institution and wielded or used over those without it. And that it is a substance, or as he put it, a commodity, and um, 
that's that's one view of power that he wanted to take apart. And then another view of power that he wanted to take apart was the idea that power simply represses, that it simply holds us down. And that if you get rid of it, you're free. And put together what he was challenging was the idea of what he rightly called sovereign power, the idea that you get from Hobbes, that you get from Schmidt, uh, that you get from the other great power theorists in the tradition of political theory and um, international relations theory. And um, there the idea is that, you know, power is held by one and transferable to another, um, or it's contained in institutions, and also that it is simply yield, used to hold things down or repress or extinguish or, or destroy even. And What's important before we get to Foucault's critique of that is to appreciate that Foucault wasn't saying no power works like that. He understands there are moments when power works like that. Police power sometimes works like that. State power sometimes works like that. Putin's power uh, sometimes works like that. But what he was trying to get us to pay attention to is that there's a whole lot of power in the modern and late modern world that doesn't work like that that works through what he called rationality, forms of reason, that works through what he called governmentality, that is what he called the governing of our conduct, not necessarily by a government, but by all kinds of things, um, ranging from the organization of space to uh, forms of reason, norms, etc., And that power understood as circulating, as irrigating through forms of political reason, through discourse, through governmentality, will allow us to understand how subjects come into being and are conducted by power without the state or the police ever pointing a finger or threatening their lives. And I think, this is approaching your question now, that there is a tendency on the left to acknowledge this on the one hand, because that's how the left talks about, um, you know, white privilege and male privilege and so forth. It doesn't talk about it as happening at the point of a gun. But on the other hand, to disavow it when it comes to major struggle, to, 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 to continue to imagine that there are the powerful and the powerless, that there is the state and the people, that there is the, 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 um, that there's capital and labor, period, end of story, rather than the work that many of us have been engaged in, understanding something like neoliberalism as bringing into being subjects who do not need to be threatened overtly at all to become perfect neoliberal operators to self-invest, to self-enhance their value, to um, imagine that what they have to do in life is nothing but continue to try to keep their value up or keep it from depleting and to treat everybody else in the same way. And that is not a, a subjectivity, a way of being that occurs because something is threatening them overtly. And that's where I think we could use more 
Foucauldian appreciation of all of the ways <laughs> that we are all, um, as it were, taken up by, produced by, fashioned by, and set into motion by forms of power that aren't sovereign, aren't, aren't contained, aren't commodified, um, but are circulating, including through our bodies, through our psyches, through our language, um, through us and our relations in every way. And I, I'm not saying that left activists or left policymakers all need to become political theorists. That's not what I'm saying. I'm only saying that I think a deeper appreciation of some of what um, political and social theory has discovered about power, its circulatory effects, its, its, its ways of producing us and not simply repressing, exploiting, or oppressing us, could be very valuable to left organizing and left policy making. Well, Dr. Brown, you've already pointed this out, but the general understanding of power is also something that people believe that it is consolidated within the upper class or the financially affluent members of the society. And neoliberalism uh, plays a huge role in that kind of consolidation, that kind of wealth consolidation, and mm -hmm. in turn, power uh, consolidation. Can you help us make sense of neoliberalism and how it is changing our conceptualization of power? That's a big question, Yugasha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that I can do it in two minutes, but I would say that, that there are several big shifts between what we might call a pre-neoliberal and a neoliberal era. And, you know, there's lots of debate today about whether we're leaving neoliberalism behind. I will just mark that debate by saying, I think in many ways there are states and major actors that are searching for ways to leave it behind, but I think our societies are pretty thoroughly neoliberalized. Our institutions are pretty thoroughly neoliberalized. That is, they've been entrepreneurialized. They've been taken apart as public agencies and, and, and institutions for the public good. Uh, they've been set on their own little financial feet to scramble and, and survive. And they've made every actor within them in that image. So even if neoliberalism is, as it were, technically coming to some kind of end or maybe just dubiousness on the part of certain state actors and certain others, uh, the, some of the damage is pretty thoroughly done and it's going to take a lot of work to start reconstructing our institutions and our subjectivities in non-neoliberal ways. So. That started with the end of the story. Let's start with the beginning. Um, I think that the, the, the biggest change in neoliberalized societies that we would want to mark in a conversation that focuses on power is precisely what we've already discussed a little bit, namely that as opposed to thinking about themselves as citizens, or as workers, or as professionals, or as capitalists, 
what neoliberal society invites us all to think of ourselves as is little entrepreneurs or little investors. Investors in ourselves, investors in our families, investors in our children if we have them. Um, and it invites us, and I think quite successfully manages to corral us into thinking of ourselves as creatures who have to monitor or tend their own value, whether on Instagram or uh, as a intern starting out from college, tend your own value to um, maximize the possibility that others will want to invest in you, that others will want to be, will want, as it were, <laughs> to be a part of you, and thus um, your own value will be enhanced. And that fundamental dynamic of neoliberalism is one that intersects with financialization, and it's too long to go into that here, but it's important to understand that the particular form that neoliberalism took, once it assaulted the idea of a society, of a working class, of public goods, of progressive taxation, of a social state. The particular form that it took was one that cohabited with a financialized understanding of value. I mention that only because early on, the neoliberals and even Foucault's analysis of neoliberalism emphasized an entrepreneurial subject as opposed to a financialized subject. So it's, it's worth just tossing that in to think about at some later point. But to wrap up, I think that the, the most important thing that neoliberalism has done with power, as it were, is usher in a way of thinking, what Foucault called an order of reason or a political, um, a form of political reason in which everything is about enhancing its value and of course in a in a monetized way but also in a non-monetized way and that that's the end the beginning and the middle of life <laughs> and that that is um, what states have to do what universities have to do what programs have to do what journals have to do what you individual academics have to do, and that's what all of our rankings and ratings and H factors and Google Scholar counts and all of the rest of that are all about. Hmm. Well, th thank you for calling us out on our, our entrepreneurial endeavors here. We're all in it. <laughs> um, I hope for high rankings and ratings for your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you've written uh, extensively about the threat that neoliberalism plays uh, in some of our institutions, particularly about the threat to democracy. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about uh, a democratic framing of power, why we still look to it as an aspirational goal, and kind of how you see neoliberalism undermining that uh, at this point in time. Great. Um Democracy is fundamentally about power sharing. It's fundamentally about sharing a peculiar form of power, namely political power. And there are different, obvious, 
different titrations of democracy, different modulations of this, more or less power sharing at its most radical and extreme, all people in a certain polity uh, share power equally at its most attenuated or thin. Democracy is simply about power sharing at the moment of electing representatives or even a czar. Um, but it fundamentally has to be about sharing the capacity to govern ourselves as a principle. And to do that, we also have to have some sense of a life in common. It doesn't have to be communalism, let alone communism, but to have any concern with sharing a life in common, we have to have a notion of the common beyond just an aggregation of bodies because there's no reason for an aggregation of bodies to care about sharing power at all. But if we have a notion of the common in which we are each part of the common, then we have the beginning of that notion of, of a demos, a people uh, engaged in kratia, rule of itself. So what does neoliberalism do to this? It breaks us into bits. It breaks us into pieces that, as Margaret Thatcher famously said, do not exist as society. Her famous line, there's no such thing as society, only individual men and women and their families. If there's no such thing as society, if there's nothing in common, if we have nothing in common and have no reason to rule in common, then we've gotten rid of a fundamental pillar of democracy. Second, democracy in the modern age, because we have large societies, requires institutions that carry out the people's understanding of what we should be, what we should do in common. We call those states. Um, we could call them other kinds of institutions. They exist at all levels of society. But these institutions not only also have to be concerned with life in common, they have to be valued as emblems of democracy. They have to be valued as expressions of democracy. What does neoliberalism have to say about that? It says, no, 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 the state exists for one reason. I'm referring back to the classic neoliberals. That is to promulgate economic growth and produce conditions for um, maximizing the well-being of a free enterprise economy. It does not and should not, according to the classical neoliberals, engage in anything else, including social legislation, legislation about the good for the people beyond producing the maximum conditions for the economy. In fact, neoliberals like Hayek um, go so far as to suggest that any legislation for social purposes is, as he put it, on the road to serfdom or tyranny. It's that any legislation of the social kind is essentially uh, tyrannical or at some points he even implies totalitarian. So what has neoliberalism done? It's discredited the people as an acting body and it's discredited their institutions as 
um, legitimate ways to enact the future of the common through social legislation. And of course, this is exactly what we see in many states over the last 40 or 50 years, um, an absolute refusal to treat social legislation of any kind as anything other than the totalitarian will of the few. Um, this is a right-wing cry today. And it's become easier and easier to, to dismiss all such legislation, whether about education, welfare, childcare, uh, progressive taxation, um, dealing with homelessness or anything else as, um, as, as totalitarian nonsense. So um, those are some of the ways in which neoliberal reason has assaulted the very foundations of democracy at the level of of, of thought and practice. Now, what's happened, of course, in the past 15 years is that there has also been, an, I, we could call it a non-neoliberal dimension of, of right-wing reaction to disintegrating societies and to globalization that has kind of fused with this neoliberal form of reason to to produce, you know, the usual, the, the DeSantis, Trump, uh, Maloney, the rest of them, um, so that what, what you have now is a kind of, um, what I've called at times, a Frankenstein creature combining um, hard right, neo-fascist formulations of politics with plenty of ethnic nationalism and Christian nationalism and the rest of it, mixed in with neoliberal language and policy and legitimated to some degree by that neoliberal language and policy. What I'm not saying is that the original neoliberals, the classical neoliberals, the, the, the founders, the Mont Pelerin Society had this in mind. I think it's really important to, to see that most of them were responding to fascism and, and seeking to counter it in their own way um, not a way I would agree with, but they were not themselves neo-fascists. They were anti-democrats. They were pure, hardcore liberals, many of them. Um, and, uh, and they were certainly capitalists, but they were not neo-fascists. But what we have today is that blend of neo-fascism and neoliberalism that uh, is scaring the hell out of all of us. Well, you've talked to us so far about the different forms of power, like political power, social power, corporate power. Um, in your opinion, is it possible to democratize um, these different forms of power? I have a couple of, of responses on the democratizing power question. On the one hand, I'm wary when somebody says, let's democratize finance, I get pretty skeptical. Uh, finance was not designed to be democratized. Finance was not designed for democracy. And finance has nothing to offer it. Finance is basically a, an important predatory phase of late capitalism uh, that is neither available to democratization nor would be, in my view, useful to it. Can radical democratic organizations make use of finance here and there? 
perhaps, but the power is always going to be arrayed on the other side. Um, that's the nature of everything from uh, private equity to asset management and the rest. It's about consolidating investors to extract as much as possible from um, available entities, practices, people's needs, whether housing or or uh, energy crises or other things. And so democratizing finance makes no sense to me. On the other hand, I think you're also asking, is it possible to democratize the powers, for example, constitutive of gender and race stratification and domination? It has to be. That is to say, it has to be possible to both imagine a world and bring into being a world in which gender is not a power. Um, we made it a power. <laughs> it is historically a power. Uh, it has to be possible for it not to be. It's not going to happen through pointing it out, as it were. It's going to happen through remaking the conditions and the understandings um, that go into everything from the reproduction of life and care work, as we often talk about it, to um, the constructions of so-called civilization and um, war. But yes, I think it is possible to democratize those powers, but here the Marxist rather than the Foucauldian in me will come out Democratizing those kinds of powers means revolutionizing the conditions of gender, of race. Of it, it, it means going beyond anti-colonialism and post-colonialism to a world in which we have finally repaired the legacies of colonialism. And that's a long, hard, difficult set of practices. Marx made it sound relatively easy on the subject of capital. You know, we would just finally um, seize the means of production and seize the state. And at that point, we would have revolutionized the conditions bringing class into being. Um, wonderful. I don't think that's, that's actually how revolutionizing power works. And it certainly doesn't work that way in some of these other domains. Hmm. Well, I was going to ask a completely different question, but now you've got me thinking about imagination um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, it seems to me, and, and we talk a lot about this, I suppose, uh, uh, this idea that there, to get to these places where that revolutionary potential is possible, we haven't figured it out clearly, right? We're still here. It requires us to have an imagination about a future that's different from now. And so I guess in some ways to put that Marxist perspective in conversation with that Foucauldian perspective where the power is keeping us and limiting that imaginative capacity that we have. How do social actors that want to propagate that world in which gender is no longer a power, how do they go about imagining and building the capacity to think of a different world? Great. Brad, I think it's always a question of how we practice it now and illuminate it in the future through those practices. There are many uh, words for this. Um, what I'm describing, but uh, I think, you know, if we stay with gender for the moment, 
I, I don't think it makes sense to wait for a time when we finally have a gender revolution. I think what what we do with with orders of power that produce and reproduce gender, and there are many different orders of power even there. There's the world of care work. There's the world of sexualization and commodification still of women's bodies. Um, there's the world of uh, gendered power from the top, the, the, the order in which white men still run the world and most of the major institutions within it. Those powers, care work, sexualization, um, language, uh, and, and control of resources, those powers all have to be addressed, as it were, to, to, to bring into being a, a new order in which, as we put it a little bit ago, gender doesn't matter. Um, but that's not something that we'll do all in, a, all in a day or all in a revolutionary moment. Those practices have been underway throughout, I would say, the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries with some serious setbacks and backlashes. But these are things that um, we have been unfolding and resisting. Uh, let me put that another way. These have been things that 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 um, groups of activists, policymakers, um, lawyers, uh, various kinds of nonprofits have been addressing and will continue to address in their daily practices. And from that, I think we we can become more imaginative. I think what people often worry about is, oh, those things are reforms. They constrain our imagination. But once you see women in power and powerful women at the heads of various organizations and doing various things and punished sometimes for that power, it can incite the imagination rather than co-opt it. And I, 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 that's where I would disagree with those who divide the world into reform and revolutionary acts. How would you suggest we think about the generation of power and how it moves around today? I think the most important thing to appreciate about power, in some ways we're, we're concluding where we started, is how many forms it takes. I mean, we have just in this conversation talked about financialization, which is an extraordinarily ethereal, liquid, barely visible, and yet unprecedentedly potent form of economic power. It, it, it rules the world. It rules nation states. It rules humans who think they are ruling it. It has, of course, created gigantic amounts of wealth and tremendous amounts of poverty and destitution. And yet it's very hard to grab hold of or bring into view. That is, in some ways, profoundly different from the ordinary, we could say by comparison, power struggles today between capital and labor that are happening in hotels, at Starbucks, at Amazon. Um, yes, financialization is back there in the back, but it's a, these are overt struggles for wages and conditions to not 
drive trucks in paralyzing heat, to have decent wages, to have decent benefits, uh, to not have bullshit benefits, the kind that, that Starbucks offers where you get a pretend college education from an online university that no longer exists. Um, these things, that, that is a different kind of power than even financial power. And then we've talked about all kinds of other things, gender power, race power, political, economic, social, power in households, ordinary households. And I'm not just going to say it's one kind of power in households, but the, you know, it was um, the classical th political theorists all understood that the household was a miniature training ground, essentially, for the state and the citizen <laughs> because of the amount of power in it. And Freud understood that in a completely different way. So I just think the most important thing about power today is to understand its enormous variety, its depths, its complexity, the inverse relationship sometimes between its manifest uh, character and its potency. Uh, that's why I started with financial power, saying you can't see it, but it's incredibly potent. And then, of course, there is no greater power today, and we haven't talked about this at all, than the power of fossil fuels to destroy a habitable planet. And yes, you can kind of see that, but you can't see all the intricate links between um, the uh, extraction of the fossil fuels, the production of the fossil fuels, the political economy of the fossil fuels, the state investments in them, the difficulty of getting hold of the problem when you have a a world that is divided into sovereign states and divided into uh, capitalist entities, the difficulty of getting hold of this enormous power that is destroying us, that's very different from all the other powers we've talked about. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, are there, for those of our listeners that are interested in reading further on this, we'll clearly link to some of your works in, in the description here. Are there other resources that you would point them to for them to learn and engage further in these conversations? Um, you know, there's, there's a world full of great literatures on all the subjects that we've talked about, and we couldn't begin to list them. So let me just thank you for your terrific questions and a really rich conversation. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you for uh, this illuminating conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap up? Nope. Thank you both. Very thought-provoking conversation for me, Brad. How did you think? completely agree and uh, my head is spinning a little bit because I feel like we touched on so many different yeah. things here and it was all felt appropriate and she moved so ad adroitly between everything really powerful and I uh, it builds on all of our previous conversations I think and it's uh, so much to dig into here but any any first thoughts for you well but to begin with I think the way she defined power was very very interesting and like somebody who called out the complexity of power not that other guests have not done that but in terms of saying that there is limited vocabulary um, that can be used to define power and we need to understand the range of 
you know, range of phrases or range of words that can um, they can be used to define power. They can be used to describe power. The different dimensions of it. It's not only stratification or um, domination or productive or destructive. It can be a bit of both. It can be, I don't know, two out of the five six terms that we can use to define power. So I think that was a great way to not only start the conversation, but also now that we're coming slightly closer to the end of this, um, to kind of think back on some of the things that we've already discussed, some of the theories that we've already learned, how they tended to focus on, let's say, two out of these dimensions and uh, maybe a single dimension of power. But here it, it, it made a lot of sense for me. I, I completely agree, and I think that was her starting. That was such a powerful place starting. It took me right back to our conversation to, with Dr. Hart to start this all off, and his discomfort with, you know, understanding and calling everything power. I think she she did recognize that everything it is a useful moniker to put over top of everything, but that in terms of analysis we need to think more deeply. And when I think back to Dr. Hart, his discomfort of calling resistance and revolutionary movements their power the same as the power of the neoliberal establishment. And so I think it's just uh, thinking that way and thinking that uh, a power and a typology of power is really compelling and something that I, I think I would, I would love to dig into further here. So what were some of the key takeaways for you, Brad? I know you were really excited about talking a bit more about neoliberalism and uh, power in the neoliberal world. What? How did that go for you? It went I, again. I think it went really well. The, the way she laid out neoliberalism, and I think what I find most compelling about her work is kind of that you know we, uh, those of us that work in the social sciences, talk about neoliberalism all the time. We mm-hmm. you know, in the back of our heads, we know that this is deregulation. It means market comes before everything. Right. It means privatization of many public goods. But for her, like putting her emphasis on how we understand that in terms of uh, how it has invaded all of our personal lives as well. And so I think, you know, uh, I, I would love to have her back to ask this of her, but I think about, you know, uh, Bourdieu and his social capital frameworks and stuff, even that, or even though I think he would very much not appreciate being put in a neoliberal frame, the idea of having our relationships referred to as capital and having, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about everything that we do in terms of return on investment and things like this and how pervasive that is, uh, is a really helpful way of thinking about how neoliberalism has atomized us all. Right, right, right. I, I thought so too. It was it was helpful to understand why we think what we think. You know, it, for me, definitely, like I said, very thought-provoking. Another thing that I found very um, thoughtful in the way that Dr. Brown framed it was how it has to be possible to democratize um, different forms of power, the different forms that we've talked about. And how that would involve, you know, revolutionizing conditions of gender, race, um, going after the colonial structures and repairing legacies of colonialism. Any additional thoughts over here? Yeah, I think I, I appreciate her thoughts on this as well. And I think I particularly appreciated her wariness of certain kinds of power, you know, her understanding that financial power may not be something that can be democratized. And so under, I think, so it's a case by case basis, each power to be 
to be shared, which I, that was for me one of the big takeaways is this idea of democracy as power sharing is so mm -hmm. powerful. And so this idea, if we want to democratize, if we want to share that power, certain kinds that cannot be shared. And so we need to figure out how to approach those things. And so thinking about um, uh, power that is based on um, personal characteristics, you know, whether that's race or otherwise, that that power perhaps needs to be eliminated more than democratized. And so it's it's an interesting question in kind of my mind how we move forward with democratizing power in general, using that little p, and then how we deal with each of the big p's underneath of that uh, becomes an interesting question. I, I agree. I also appreciated the way, um, I think I, you know, I'm, I'm new to you understanding U.S. politics, but it was really helpful for me to understand the way she framed the left's way of thinking and the right's way of thinking that even though you know we we tend to believe that you know they're of a certain mindset but at the same time not doing enough to um, kind of call out those issues um, properly definitely adds on adds on to the current problems that that we are facing um, in the country Thinking about in terms of social change practitioners, um, what were your key takeaways over there? Yes, I think I'll, I'll piggyback from your previous comment there and, and suggest that it may be helpful. And now that I'm suggesting this, this perhaps means that I need to do it, which is I don't have time to do this, but hopefully someone else will. But, you know, this idea of kind of creating a rubric for the different kinds of power that are being enacted in any given situation, mm -hmm. so that you can look at a situation and say, how is financial power impacting this? How is gender-based power impacting this? How is race-based? How are political power? All these different kinds of uh, how is this uh, an example of stratification versus plunder? You know, how are these different kinds of powers being enacted here? And then I think taking a moment to analyze how we, in our activism or in our nonprofit work, nonprofit work in particular here, thinking about all the different kinds of forms of power that we're reinforcing in that and how comfortable are we with those things. You know, we, in most nonprofit work, we are not. Uh, uh, um, seeking to undo the the capitalist power that has led to massive injustices. We're trying to put band-aids over those gaps. And so we're allowing that power to continue to exist in some ways. And so those are ethical questions that I think we all need to grapple with as we think about these different kinds of power and how we, even in our movements, our powerful movements opposing injustice, can still uphold other forms of power that are unjust as well. So that's kind of where I wound up thinking about this. Um, and again, someone that wants to create that rubric, let me know. We can talk about it. But uh, how about you? Any any takeaways that you think of for practitioners? Well, something that we've already discussed a couple of times um, by now, but still needs to, needs to be said, that it is important to research the political structures, the power structures, to understand where it is uh, coming from and how it is being produced um, are all important questions that need to be answered before we can, you know, jump onto the ground and try to fix things. So, um, yeah, any, anything else? Yeah, I think just an awareness at the end of the day of what neoliberalism is doing to us is so mm -hmm. powerful here in terms of the way it's, it's, it's encouraging us all to think here in this, in this framing around economics and stuff 
uh, I'm not stating this very well, but I think it's just such a powerful and pervasive idea that if we start to unpack how we operate in that space, um, it can do a world of good for how we understand our own actions as well as those around us. That is a great way to end the episode here, but we'll be back um, to talk more about power in practice and how we have come to see it and realize it in the cities. So. Very good. Thank you, Yukasha. Looking forward to seeing where we go next. Thank you, Brad. <laughs>